Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of the Accidental Tomatoes podcast. I'm your host, Joe Webb, and this is a podcast for spiritual exiles, for all of us who are looking for faith and spirituality outside the fences and beyond the walls of institutional Christianity. We've got a really great interview for you uh, with this in this episode with um, with my good friend Zach Morton. Uh, but before we get to that, I'd like to quickly just remind you that you can find all of the content that our amazing team is creating for our community on our website, accidentaltomatoes.com. You can go there to find every episode of the podcast, as well as our various blog entries on a wide variety of topics that are related to things like religious deconstruction, social justice, liberation, theology, and so forth. If you are inspired by our work and you'd like to support us, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash accidental tomatoes to learn how you can help us create and curate content that is helping people navigate the difficulties of spiritual trauma, deconstruction, and the work of just trying to build a better, more inclusive world. Accidental Tomatoes is the official content site for New Wineskins, a fully inclusive, non-traditional online faith community rooted in deep, authentic conversation and spiritual practices. New Wineskins is a member of the Reconciling Ministries Network and is open to anyone seeking to explore faith and spirituality on a deeper level than many can experience in the institutional church. If you're looking for a community where you can express your deepest doubts, ask your hardest questions, and be welcomed unconditionally, feel free to visit one of our weekly Zoom gatherings. You can learn more by visiting our website at newwineskinsnetwork.org. So again, our guest for this episode is Zach Morton. Zach is the pastor of First Presbyterian Church in Morgantown, West Virginia, right next door to the campus of West Virginia University. And we also have our own Brad Davis back in the co-host chair for this episode. And the three of us um, had a really fascinating conversation about Appalachian eco-theology, food justice, and the various ways that we can care for the most vulnerable folks in our neighborhoods and communities. So without further ado, please give a warm Accidental Tomatoes welcome to Zach Morton. But that's essentially what the covenant is. It's a relationship between God and humanity and the land. I think that's probably the more um, obvious trinity to me in the Bible. (laughs) Then Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It's God, humanity, and the land. And if one relationship is out of balance, it moves the others out of balance. Well, hey there, friends, and welcome to another episode of the Accidental Tomatoes podcast. I am so excited for this episode. We've got a guest that uh, I think we've been in conversation for well over a year to try to make this happen, and um, I, I got to own it. I dropped the ball <laughs> on, on getting this scheduled, but uh, we're finally finally going to have my good friend Zach Morton on the podcast. Brad Davis is back in the co-host chair for this episode. Brad, how are things going, brother? Going good. What's happening, Joe? You know, we're we're all living somebody's dream. I'm not sure who's here, but uh, um, not but, mine. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Zach, uh, I want to I want to get to you real quickly here because I um, want to get right into the meat. We've got a lot we want to talk about. Zach Morton, uh, you and I have known each other. I don't know, maybe three or four years, um, going back to Wild Goose Festival. Uh, I guess that was 2019, so I guess about three years or so ago, uh, we met there. We've got a lot of mutual friends and acquaintances. Zach is a Presbyterian uh, pastor. Zach, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna give you a chance to introduce yourself to the folks, uh, talk about who you are and what you do, and kind of what you're about, and then we will, we'll dive in. Welcome. Thank you. It's it's yeah. great to be with you. Uh, our our connection was through the great Jenny Williams, who's been a frequent yeah, yeah. Uh, guest on your podcast. So Indeed. I'm yeah, grateful for yeah. her introducing us. Um, but my name is Reverend Zach Morton. I serve First Presbyterian Church in downtown Morgantown, West Virginia. Uh, we're kind of right next to campus. Uh, so that uh, colors a lot of what we do and what we're about here and uh, what our congregation is about and what we're doing. Um, but I am ordained in the Presbyterian Church USA, which is what the congregation here is a part of. Um, I am also a graduate of West Virginia Wesleyan College down in Buchanan, West Virginia. So that is my previous uh, claim to West Virginia. Um, but I am uh, a native of uh, just south of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, in a town called Cannonsburg. 
Um, so it's technically still Appalachia and kind of grew up. My grandparents were bluegrassers and went to bluegrass festivals all around the tri-state area. And so that's how I really feel like I got kind of a connection to Appalachia and got it in my blood uh, on those weekends running around in the woods, climbing trees and vines and diving in creeks and ponds. And so somewhere along the line, that dirt seeped into my DNA, I think. So uh, that's what kind of got me interested in all this that's awesome. stuff. Pitts- Pittsburgh is the Paris of Appalachia after all. I mean, <laughs> For sure. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. It's kind Absolutely. of almost I'm- like the capital sort of yeah <laughs> i got i i should give our listeners a warning if zach slips into that you know that that pittsburgh he's in that um if you start <laughs> hearing him talk about uh gum bands and uh you know uh going downtown to get some pierogies um you know that that might slip into the vernacular from time to time yeah it's real accessible for me just so you know it, it'll come out from time to time <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely well zach thanks for uh thanks for joining us um we we again we've been kind of talking. You've you've had a lot going on um, the last couple of years since I've known you, and and on and off I've talked about having you on the podcast. And I'm really um, again I'm really glad we could make it happen. Uh, what really prompted me to reach out to you um, to to be on this episode is uh, a sermon you just recorded as as we're recording this podcast. Uh, it was about a week or so ago, late May. Um, you you videoed uh, a sermon that you did. Um, from down in the in the neighborhood of Beckley, West Virginia, where you had a mountaintop removal uh, mining site sort of in the background of your video. And it was just so compelling. And you were talking about this concept of Appalachian eco-theology. And I think that's something that, you know, we, we've kind of touched base. We've on this podcast and in the stuff we write on the blog side of Accidental Tomatoes, you know, we've talked about um, ecological justice, environmental justice, and we talk a lot about, you know, Appalachian cultural justice. And I, so I'm really interested to hear you talk a little bit about like culturally um, and ecologically, environmentally, where do you see those intersections? And what was it that um, that kind of inspired you to do this series on Appalachian eco-theology? All right, I'll see if I can incorporate that all, was a lot. all of those that questions was a lot. <laughs> together. <laughs> um, but I mean, long story short is I am uh, I am a learner of this um, above all else. I'm relatively new as a resident to West Virginia. I've only lived here for four years. I mean, I grew up, went to college in the area and then did some time living in Kansas and Atlanta. So I've just kind of come back to West Virginia um, so I am learning a lot about this uh, Appalachian lens because um, this is my first time here post like theological training and ordination and doing ministry here. Um, so that's, you know, what sort of sparks, sparks me and prompts me initially. Um, the other thing that just sparks me is that I love the outdoors. Uh, I love nature. It's the most inspiring place for me um, at some level. Uh Church and sanctuary spaces are workspaces, although I do love what I do. That's what they are. Uh, so the place where I uh, find my spirituality at its most verdant is uh, out in the woods, which is why I live out in the woods now um, on a few <laughs> acres uh, south of Morgantown here. Um, and it, it's just highlighted for me the the deep need to be in relationship with the place in which you live and how much uh, potential that has to help you form an identity, um, an identity that is deeply meaningful and kind of isn't just an aspect of who you are, but becomes a part of who you are. And I think that's, I'm experiencing just a little taste of that tradition that has been in Appalachia for generations. And really, um, I suspect, uh, has been, uh, an undertow for, uh, folks who are living here even before any uh, of us Europeans got here of this need to live in deep relationship and harmony with the land and place. And you can't separate land from people. Um, and as I, the, the more I think about and read about and learn about and experience natural environments and spirituality in natural environments, and the more I read scripture and look at it through that lens, the more I think that, Eco-theology is kind of a misnomer. Um, Mm. We think of it as like an aspect, as another branch of theology that's sort of, you know, coming off of the main shoot of the main trunk. 
But I think when I go back and read the Bible after starting to have these kinds of experiences, I think eco-theology is the main part of theology because of wow, the kind yeah. of life that was lived by the people who were writing these scriptures and the experiences that they had. They they wouldn't have ever had an eco-theology. They would have had a theology that placed mm-hmm. ecological uh, concerns at the center of how they understood themselves and their place and their identity and the divine. There was no separation. It wasn't like an optional major. <laughs> it was it. Yeah. You know? Um, so that's been kind of part of the takeaway. And then obviously, I, I mean, I think... Uh, so many folks in Appalachia, because of their lived experience, um, have ecological concerns on their radar, um, mostly because of you know a lot of exploitative practices and and that uh, that whole history of our region. So it's already on the radar, but interestingly enough, it, it's not always placed in the realm of of faith. Um, so the more we can center faith in this conversation around environment, um, I think will help us make a better future. Yeah, I, Brad, I'm so glad you you were able to to be on, uh, you know, be part of this conversation because, you know, as, as folks who are regular listeners will know, you know, that's, you live in Southern West Virginia, you live in the coal fields, that's where your, your life's work is. Um, and I'm curious, um, you know, to hear how, you know, some of what Zach just said resonates with you. Um, and then, and then also just kind of maybe give you two guys a chance to kind of talk about that sense of place uh, you know, that's kind of baked into, to, I, I think I agree with what Zach's saying that, um, you know, eco-theology is theology, right? Yeah, absolutely. And that's what resonates with me listening to Zach uh, talk and, and listening to to the sermon that that, that he uh, put out just to, uh, last week or so. Uh, but yeah, that, that deep connection uh, the deep relationship, the re- the relationality between the people of Appalachia and the land, and how that, like you said, Joe, is baked into uh, who we are as Appalachian people, but also that how that has seemed to somehow, some way, been disconnected through uh, exploitative industrial practices. Uh, such as extraction industries, um, and and I, I guess along those lines, just I, I would like to ask Zach, how, in your opinion, how do we make that connection again? Uh, how, how do we yeah. reconnect? Because that's the question that I continually ask myself in the work that I do, because I think that's key. Uh, in in changing the mindset and beginning to restore some of what we've lost. Yeah, I mean, my fast and practical answer is that we've got here because we haven't talked about it. Mm, <laughs> so yeah. the way that we make a difference is we talk about it more and it becomes a part of our sermons, our public theology, our advocacy. And it just we we as leaders in the faith community have to demonstrate that. Um, So there's a big responsibility on faith leaders, I think. Um, But I think another, another way that's becoming more and more obvious is that people care for things that they value and love. And so the more that we can get people outside in these natural, wonderful places that we have, especially in Appalachia, that is one thing we have an abundance of is beautiful places. Um, we, you know, not all of them have been completely destroyed, although too many of them have been. But I think the more that we can get people outside <laughs> to appreciate nature, um, because I think uh, God and the the spirit that's out there kind of takes over and develops an appreciation the more time people spend out there, the more we teach um, uh, children and generations to come to appreciate those kind of wonderful out, outdoor places. It kind of takes root and it becomes easier and more natural for people to make that connection when they've had a personal experience um, of experiencing an environment or a place as sacred or as speaking to them in some deep way. So, I mean, those are very practical, but like 
long form, <laughs> yeah. uh, consistent uh, things that we can do. Um, because I mean, in the short term, there's no number of things that it, a shortage of things that we could, you know, focus on. But I think those two might be the most important, just talking about it more and getting more people outside and appreciating the environments and ecosystems around them. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's interesting you say that I, um, last weekend was uh fly fishing with a friend of mine up in, you know, the West Virginia mountains. And, you know, obviously we're in some really pristine, um, very wild places, you know, kind of off the beaten path sort of places. And um, we were having this conversation about like during pandemic, um, how uh, a lot of people discovered like the Dolly Sods wilderness area um, in, in Eastern West Virginia. And, and it's, that's, you know, not far from the Washington DC, you know, kind of beltway area, all that urban sprawl from DC. And, you know, you hear a lot of people kind of complaining um, about, you know, how crowded it's getting in some of these areas, um, you know, to which my response as a native West Virginian is there's a lot of places besides Dolly Saws where we can go, but it's a gem, right? And it is, and, but there's this, like, we, we walk this, um, this like knife's edge of wanting to have outdoor experiences where we can have solitude and quiet and all of those things. Um, but that at the same time, have enough people value them to actively work to protect them. Right. Um, so I don't know, how does that, how does that like strike with you guys? It, it certainly strikes me that, well, if we're, you know, complaining uh, whatever about i mean about too many people coming in and appreciating our natural beauty that's uh that's our own thing but also i feel like perhaps that gives us um a way to advocate and push for more public land in west virginia that is available for use and appreciation and you know uh, sensible ecotourism kinds of development, um, because that could be a really great opportunity um, for uh, uh, for this growth and development um, from a, a human perspective and, and valuing those places because we have such an abundance of those things. But a lot of our our land, unfortunately, is not necessarily available to the public and is privately held, a lot of it by outside groups. One of the interesting mm. things I learned when doing this series um, was researching the number of outside interests and stakeholders that own land in West Virginia. And many of them, Brad, you probably know about this already, um, but they own it. Like There are different funds and companies. Like The largest um, one is out of North Carolina, and they own like half a million acres across 30 counties or something like that. Um, and so the top 10 landholders in West Virginia, private landowners are all fit that mold uh, of outside interest groups that own the land for like its timber value as a commodity. Um, and so those lands are not available for public use. They are not available for public benefit. Um, we don't get to decide how they're used. Um, and I think that's a major problem because those local communities and people who live closest to those places will not see any benefit from the land that they live on and near. Um, and I, I, th I think those kinds of things are things that we have to think about. Yeah, it sounds radical, but like we need more public lands that are available for responsible use and management for the benefit of the communities that live there in closest proximity to those places. It sounds radical, but it also sounds like it's something that needs to be done. <laughs> uh, I, I completely agree. You know, I, I'm going, I'm soon moving to a different appointment uh, in just a month or so to McDowell County, which happens to be the poorest county in West Virginia. Uh, the poor among the poorest counties in America, among the poorest places in the Western Hemisphere, and the the last time I checked, this could have changed since then. But eighty percent of the land in McDowell County is owned by two companies, both out of state companies, mm. um, for the exploitation of the land. Yeah, uh, and, and that's definitely something that. 
to get back to a, an earlier point that Zach made, not only that all West Virginians, all Appalachians need to be talking about, need to be having that discussion, but in particular, the Appalachian faith community uh, and faith leaders in Appalachia and making that connection uh, between those those issues from a from, through the lens of faith. And there's a lot of biblical precedent here when we like read through the lines and learn the history of the context here, both um, Hebrew Bible and New Testament, right? I mean, I think a lot about, um, you know, Jesus was a walker, right? So like when he's walking between all those districts in Galilee or walking back down to Jerusalem in the south, what's he seeing? He's seeing farms that, and this is attested outside the Bible, that we're being more and more converted to large-scale production of like spices, olives. Um, the Sea of Galilee was like a, a real hot spot of um, in, in empire interests coming in, exploiting that, that population of fish, driving out and making it harder for people who had fished there for generations, and depleting the resources and not listening or giving a lick about people who had been doing it and had learned and cultivated wisdom of how to do it sustainably. So there's like no accent that Jesus is walking around seeing all this and is very subversive against this system. And he recruits fishermen to be in his group. <laughs> and so many of his stories are about, oh, Jesus shows up and cultivates this abundance of fish. Well, yeah, because the lake used to be probably that abundant. It wasn't anymore. And so it was saying something not just theological and not just about, oh, Jesus was God. Like we tend to no, it was making like a political economic statement about those realities of the day and about how those natural resources should be used and managed. Like Jesus is saying something about that. But we've missed that because we kind of never delved uh, or we don't enough delve deeply into the the historic realities and context in which Jesus did his ministry and the way that the, the symbolic actions that he took, what they would have meant to the people that he was specifically speaking to. I mean, when I think about Jesus having um, lunch on the beach uh, after his resurrection, like he it says that he caught large fish, which the largest fish were the ones that were shipped off to like the rich mm -hmm. elite of the day. Like Jesus is sitting there eating Caesar's fish on the beach with the disciples <laughs> post-resurrection. Like, come on. Yeah. <laughs> that was, you, were, 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 Zach, I think, were you sitting with me when Diana Butler Bass gave that sermon? Oh Bob yeah, Geese? yeah, she did. Yeah, yeah. That, that, I go back and listen to that sermon at least twice a year. Um, and, and it makes that exact point, right? That we, we so over-spiritualize these stories of Jesus and we fail to, to really contextualize and really, you know, deeply understand, you know, Jesus wasn't saying things just so that just for the spiritual benefit of people 2000 years later, he was saying things that spoke into the reality of the lives of people in his time and place. Right. And, and that reality was the Roman empire Caesar's exploitation of the land and, you know, kind of to, to draw that connection forward to where we are now, you can't exploit the land without also exploiting the people of the land. Right. Um, and, and I, that to me is a place where I think our churches really need to wake up, um, especially here in Appalachia. The, the, the contexts run parallel. Brad, I, I wish, I wish your audience could see Brad on zoom because <laughs> He's about to explode here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, when I when I hear, I used to think like when I was growing up in seminary or whatever that like uh, the the God, you know, don't bring politics too much into the church, into the gospel, into religion. Now I'm like, if if you don't think the gospel is political, you have no idea what the gospel actually is. Like, I don't really think you. I think you need to work a little bit harder and learn a little bit more. Um, Speaking as you know, someone who is a history major, oh, I love it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I knew I liked you for a reason, Zach. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, and, and Joe and I have had this conversation before. 
with a lot actually about this this over spiritualized gospel uh, that that has infiltrated very intentionally been infiltrated into our Appalachian churches. Uh, this what 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 we would call the company gospel, right? To for everyone to toe the line, don't make waves, uh, uphold the status quo, uh, uphold the empire, uphold your exploiters, your colonizers. Uh, And we have here in Appalachia, man, uh, a little dose of of liberationism is is what's needed. Um, and that goes from with an ecological standpoint too, as, as Zach was talking about, uh, you know, the the biblical uh, precedent for you know this this caring for the land and the exploitation of the land. I'm thinking Jubilee, man, yeah. give us our land back. Yeah, mm. <laughs> you know, yeah. that now if you if we want to get radical, let's get radical. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that. Uh, gosh, when you look back at the history, I mean, you can look back at the history of the world, but let's just talk about the U.S. Um, that so much of the like institutional evils that we look back on and condemn wholeheartedly, like, you know, the most obvious one is chattel slavery, right? Like the history of a censored gospel <laughs> propping up the exploitation of land and people and people's labor to come in and and do that like that is at the center of what that is um and so we see i'm not exactly equating what's gone on in appalachia with the experience of chattel slavery but i am saying that there is a cord there is a thread there is a strand that is common in order of people exploiting a place and using a censored or neutered gospel to reinforce that system of exploitation of land and of people. And we need to learn to pick that up and call it out and uh, work against that uh, a lot better than we have um, or else we're, you know, we don't have much to say. (laughs) It's, it's, it's a pretty short line to draw historically between, you know, the slave owners gospel that, that our friend Jonathan Duvall, talked about um, when he was on here a few episodes ago uh, ago and you know the company gospel that, that you, you can see um, how that evolved pretty clearly right and it is it's that gospel of um, know your place um, like like Brad said you know uphold uh, uphold the the company uphold your oppressors uphold the empire ultimately um, and, and you, you know, your reward comes in heaven, right? So you got that to look forward to, right? So yeah, work, work your whole life so that you can look forward to death, um, while, while we sit here and get rich, right? Well, the, the thread between, you know, the, the slaveholder religion, uh, the company gospel, um, the, the, um, you know, high in the sky when you high, die. High in the yeah. sky, by and by. Stay in your place. You are poor because God ordained you to be poor. You you are uh, you don't the 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 um the 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 landowner uh, by providence has that land. Uh, it, it's almost like a doctrine of discovery, right? Uh, mm. Or manifest destiny, right? That. Um, we, uh, we can exploit the land because we own it because God says, or, or God ordained that we own. Yeah. Um, I, I think what strikes me about it when you kind of step back and consider, um, the, how we've gotten to like the crisis point that we're in. I mean, it's not like it's been you know, in the making for the last two decades, it's been a generational thing, even going back hundreds of years um, that there's like that our whole society, um, especially from an ecological framework, is organized around such a lack of intention um, that uh, Wendell Berry makes this point um, 
if no if you haven't read the unsettling of america you should read it by wendell berry but one of the points that he makes um at the very beginning of the book really is that you know of course the continent was discovered by accident <laughs> and the first folks who were here were looking for you know gold or looking for a fountain or looking for something that would be of direct benefit to them that they could then you know take back and make a killing off of um, it was these like ancient equivalents of venture capitalists or something. Um, mm. And that's not intentionality. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah. And so like that whole intent or lack of intent, <laughs> um, uh, a sort of greed based intent is really what we've formed so much of our society here around and we've never stopped or paused long enough to say like um is is uh, is this the right way to organize uh this place this land the people here um this is how we've gotten here is because of a lack of foresight and of asking the question just because we can should we um and uh we the the framework that the bible takes like if you go back in deuteronomy is that whenever god was setting up a covenant between god and the people to come to a home land <laughs> um it, the, a lot of those commandments a lot of those mitzvot that are there um are are centered around this theme of here is how you sustainably live on the land mm. And just because you can doesn't mean you should. So if you live within these means, you know, you will essentially what live long and prosper, right? We'll use a Star Trek word. But that's essentially yeah. what the covenant is. It's a relationship between God and humanity and the land. I think that's probably the more um, obvious trinity to me in the Bible Ooh, <laughs> than Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It's God, humanity, and the land. And if one relationship is out of balance, it moves the others out of balance. Um, and it's interesting uh, because so much of what God says, if you follow my ways, if you uphold my commandments, then the land will produce well for you, right? Like there's a direct consequence with the land. And if you don't, then it's not going to rain. There's going to be environmental degradation. It's not going to support you. There's a direct link in the basic covenantal relationship that forms the whole framework for the narrative of the Bible. Man, I love that um, um, that idea of a, of a trinitarian relationship. Um, that's that's some that's some really good deep stuff. I want to. I think that maybe gives gives us an opportunity to transition the conversation. Um, a little bit because I think we're still on topic, but there's another project that you've been involved in, Zach, that I want to give you a chance to talk about a little bit. And that is, um, this, this food justice, um, gardening project that you've got going on over in Morgantown. So yeah, what can you, what can you tell us about that? And, and again, I think like, I think the parallels with what we've already been talking about are pretty clear here. Yeah, for sure. Um, so our, our church, uh, what after I got here about four years ago, um, we realized that our landscaping was trash and we needed to either dump a bunch of money into it or do something different. And so we were like, we should do something different because what, <laughs> what are we going to, what are we really going to plant? No one's to take care of it. So, uh, we, uh, did some soil tests and put some amendments in and we planted a garden just in the area around the church in like the little three, four foot wide sections where our landscaping used to be. And we said, well, we'll give it a go. Whatever we raise, it will be available to people who live, you know, directly adjacent to the church um, or to the local food pantries that we already had some partnerships with. Um, and uh, we found that uh, we were actually really into it and got kind of excited about it. And what was really cool was that we're right downtown, right? So the first year we grew three sisters, which is corn and beans and squash all in the same place, like right outside of our sanctuary. So every time someone walked by, they see these big corn stalks right next to the sanctuary. It was, it was, it was pretty cool. Um, but we generated like over 1,600 pounds of produce in the first year wow. of the garden. Wow. That went to our food pantries. And that's just what we measured because a lot of our, our folks who go between, we, we grow tomatoes and peppers and especially the cherry tomatoes we invite folks to come and pick and glean whatever they want 
Um, so they would do that on a regular basis. And that's helped us form like a better relationship with some of our folks um, that we uh, do community with down here. Um, so learning from that, we said, well, uh, can we like, can we amp it up? Like, can we scale it? Because we only have so much room around the church. <laughs> so uh, there was a, a small uh, campus food garden at WVU that was also started a couple years ago. Um, and we said, well, maybe a partnership with the university is possible because the university does own like a fair bit of land um, down here in Morgantown. Um, and so we found a spot that is right down along the river. Um, at a greenhouse that is owned by WVU that's operated uh, by a recovery group, actually, and um, the agronomy department, some folks from the agronomy department there. Um, but there was like four acres that was unused. It was an old industrial site. It was just backfill and who knows what. Um, so we said, well, I wonder if we can uh, if we can get the university to let us use it, that we could make something out of it. So they let us use it. And they said, if you can raise money to build it, then we'll match it and we'll figure out what that match is going to go to. And uh, we raised more money than they expected. If you ever get a promise like that, don't get a cap on it. That's my advice <laughs> to you. So we raised like $25,000 through some grants to build raised beds. Because, uh, again, it's in, it's industrial. The soil, There's who knows what in the soil. So we needed to build it. Yeah, that. yeah. Um, so we're building raised beds uh, on the site. And we're going to grow produce that is specifically for the food pantries. And the reason we are doing that uh, is that we think that forming relationships in the community um, in order to provide fresh local produce for folks who are, you know, food insecure is the technical word. But, you know, for, for people who are finding it just harder and harder to get by. Um, for a whole host of other reasons, which we will have another podcast about at some point, right? Now. Yeah. Um, but because we we realize like uh, we have a relationship with the biggest food pantry here in town, and the produce that they get is leftovers from the supermarkets and from Walmart. Mm. So it's the industrial scale, right? So it's already food that's not really particularly fresh. <laughs> You know, we found through the church garden that people want it and they'll take it if it's available. People will use it. They want they want that kind of food because um, that's, I think, a misnomer that a lot of times uh, folks have is that, you know, folks just want, you know, prepackaged stuff. And we have not found that to be true at all. Mm. If you give folks access, they will they will do it. And not only that, but, um, you know, we have opportunities to actually once that garden is up and running to like work the garden with people who will take the food, receive the food. Um, which is great. And the other thing is for an environmental impact is that that food that ends up at food pantries, who knows how many food miles that has on it? Who knows how long it's traveled to get mm -hmm. there and how many resources have been used? It's it's wasteful from that perspective. Um, so we're saying how the question we're asking is how big a dent can we make in meeting that need in our local community? Like, could we get close to covering a gap where we can provide fresh local produce for an ever-growing um, segment of people who depend on those food pantries for a bulk of their nutrition. And um, that's that's where we're headed. And we want to find out, like, how, how big a dent can we make in that local food economy and do it from, like, a perspective of abundance and grace that everything we produce, everything with this project, the main goal is to get fresh local produce in the hands of people who would not have access to it otherwise. That's the most important purpose of this. So it's for a fundamentally different purpose than most other food production. Um, and we think that is is something worth putting a lot of energy and resource in it. And the byproduct is that like we're already building a lot of relationships with other groups at the university, local rotary programs. We have a resilient communities group here at on WVU campus and folks who are interested in seeing alternative local food economies, which really are just like kind of rebuilding and rediscovering like a local food economy, which is what we've done for generations. <laughs> it's only in the last, you know, um, 50, 60 years in industrial farming policies that we've gotten away from that. So we're kind of like reclaiming that in a way. 
Um, and I hope we I hope we uh, see more people who are interested in that because uh, I do think in Appalachia that we can produce a heck of a lot more of the things that we need here locally, and that ultimately that will result in not just better opportunities for Appalachians to find good and meaningful work, um, but also to have better land management and to understand the value of a land better um, for some of these practices that are being forgotten uh, with the depletion of so many small family farms, uh, not just in Appalachia, but across the country. Mm, that's, yeah, that... The, the more you talk about this, the more I see this as such a holistic um, approach to, well, I mean, life in general, but 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 especially theology. It really is. It's not like you said at the beginning. These aren't branches of theology. These are, are parts of a whole um, that that point us in a direction of um, justice and liberation and renewal, um, redemption, you know, to use kind of a churchy word, right? Yeah, I mean, we, we like communion is at the center, right? The best kind of theology puts food on the table, like in that practical sense. Like yeah. I mean it in that practical of a way um, yeah. that like we're at our best as practitioners of uh, the way of Jesus when we're doing that kind of stuff. So interesting because it, not only is it responsible uh, use of the land, but it is building it, from from a biblical perspective, it is building beloved community. And because, like you said, a community is at the center, and we you are building beloved community through putting food on the table, making sure that everyone has enough, everyone is on equal footing, mutuality, relationally, everybody is coming together, uh, and and that's a beautiful thing. Yeah, what what I what I'm kind of most excited about is I think that I mean as a minister like I spend so much time talking about like visions for the future of the kingdom and this feels like a tangible way to make a connection of like we're actually doing it. We're actually going to provide like a tangible alternative because we're doing this for a whole different reason than what you know, the, the fundamentals of how we've set up, you know, the modern food economy to, to do and what, you know, what its uh, misvalues kind of are. Um, so we're, we can like demonstrate like what it can look like. Um, and I, I, I think I'm most excited to see where, where that goes and how that can like inspire other people to get connected with it or to do similar things in other places. I don't think we're the only ones who are doing things like this, but I'm glad that we've figured out a way to do it here at Morgantown. Yeah. And I love how you said like your congregation is just into it. Mm -hmm. Like it feels like you've tapped into something that they already kind of had a passion for and maybe just sort of needed, you know, sometimes we just need that first little taste of it, that first little model or blueprint um, to begin to see what's possible, you know? Um, yeah. 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 Well, I think most people have, uh, I mean, unless your head's really buried in the sand, uh, people know how uh, how completely broke so many of our systems are right now <laughs> and how much of them yeah. lack real human value and uh, don't have any dimension of like sacredness or covenant or responsibility between people, between land. Um, so that's the stuff I'm interested in, in is how and, and like the food system is just one of those things, right? Like I, I think we... I mean, my gosh, with all the stuff that comes through people's news feeds constantly, like we have a deep sense of how like broken current things are. We just mm. don't always know how to fix them. And it's going to take small, tangible steps to give us the imagination to, you know, make some fundamental changes yeah. that we need to make. Um, so we need more and more people doing those, these sorts of things like as much as they possibly can because we lack from so much imagination i think not just theologically but practically as a as a social order right now like it's just yeah people can see that shit is broke <laughs> you know yeah 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 well it, it, speaking of small tangible steps I, I do want to get to one more thing that that you've been involved in and this was 
Um, I, I really wanted to have you on the podcast, like I said, about a year ago and, um, and, and I dropped the ball on it, but, but you did a really remarkable, uh, to me anyhow, really remarkable project, um, about a year or so. Was it about a year or so ago? Or was it even more than that like when you did the walk? Now, yeah. yeah. The walk, the walk for West Virginia. Um, tell us a little bit about that because I know just in conversations that you and I've had, you and I've had since then, like, I feel like that was something that really, um, in a lot of ways informed some of this theology that you're talking about now. Right. Yeah, for sure. Um, so that I happened what about a year and a half ago in September, I think it was that I was walking. It was pretty close to the beginning of COVID, but our church being downtown, um, and we have a lot of, uh, houseless neighbors and we've, we've done a, gotten them really involved in a lot of direct service work. The church has been historically, we have a pancake breakfast, a free breakfast that we do every Sunday morning. They've been doing that for 25 years. Um, have a good relationship with HealthRight, which is a local community that um, provides free health care for folks and uh, has a lot of direct service uh, arms, too, um, and some other groups down here that, that do that kind of work. Um, and, and we just found that there was so much misunderstanding and stigma with folks who were here on the streets in Morgantown, especially. I know that's true uh, in other communities and across the country, too, but especially in Morgantown. So uh, I did the walk for West Virginia partially because, you know, it was COVID and everyone was quarantined and I could do it then because <laughs> there's less <laughs> going on in the church. Um, but I took a week and walked from Morgantown to Charleston to the state capitol. Um, on foot, walked the roadways, um, and along the way, I stopped to highlight different intersectional issues uh, or to help people better understand the situation in which houseless folks are in and uh, to help them understand that like the whole uh, idea of like just get a job, pull yourself up by your bootstraps is, uh, is complete bullshit um, mm -hmm. because... You know, something as simple as getting a social security card or a birth certificate that you need that had gotten stolen um, because either somebody stole your stuff or because, um, you know, someone from the city swept your camp and threw it away. Um, like that takes months <laughs> and you yeah, can't really yeah. get employment before you do that. And it takes money and it takes time. And sometimes you can't even start to apply for housing whenever you get certain things. Um, then when you add like trauma and experiences on top of that, um, like there's just so many things that people deal with that we don't have good ways to support or help people get out of. And it's important for people to understand that lived reality that so many people in our community are facing. And a lot of people who have been here in Morgantown for a long time, you know, some people see houseless folks, especially in our town and think like, oh, they're just passing through. But no, I, I did a survey um, this past year and um, over 60% of our houseless folks have been here for more than four years in Morgantown. Um, so they're, they're our neighbors, they're our residents. Mm -hmm. um, you know, any excuses people have to dismiss them, they will come up with, um, but they're they're not very good ones. Um, so I recorded uh, little uh, videos along the way just talking about those things. I conducted interviews with folks before I went to learn more about folks who are in direct service work to help me understand better. Um, and those are actually still up. Um, if you go to Walk for West Virginia, there's a Facebook page. There's also a website uh, where you can actually see those videos. Very cool. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll have um, we'll have links to those. Um those sites that you just mentioned in the, uh, in the show notes too. So folks can find those if they're interested in it. Um, Zach, this has been uh, an amazing conversation. Um, unfortunately, we're drawing close to the end of our time here. Um, Brad, you got any, any other questions for our friend Zach before we wrap this one up? I just want to thank Zach for all that you're doing uh, and, and the, the nuanced ways that you are bringing to our attention um, uh, the the need to connect faith with land and 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 to protect it and to and to lift up Appalachian people in the process uh, and building community here. It's vital work that you're doing, and I thank you for it. Yeah, amen to that, Zach. Um, anything you're working on new or or any place um, where folks can kind of if they're interested in what you're working on, where they can connect with you and um, you know, ask, ask questions or find out what's going on. 
For anywhere close to Morgantown, come help us with the garden project. It's a lot of work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Go yeah. get your hands dirty. Yeah, yeah seriously, that's <laughs> the best way to practice your theology is with dirt under your fingernails. That's the best way to do it. Um, uh, I will. I will also kind of say that I am. I am grateful uh, for uh, all those Appalachians and folks who have done this work before I ever got here or turned back. At, at, People like Brad and people who have come before us, like I, I learned so much from people who have done the work and are doing the work for longer than I have, uh, who have been thoughtful enough to articulate it, to write it down, to be good examples. And uh, those are the folks who continue to inspire me. And I, I wouldn't you know, be able to do any of the stuff that we're doing as a congregation without them and without other people who are interested and invested in it. Um, so get out there, uh, appreciate nature, appreciate the place where you live and cultivate a deeper awareness of how that is a fundamental way that we connect to God and to each other because we always have. That has always been the fundamental of how we understand ourselves to be human is in relationship with, with the land and the place we live with each other and with God around us. That was such a great conversation uh, with Zach. Uh, I'm so grateful once again for uh, for him spending the time with Brad and I to to have this uh, very important, I think, dialogue about eco theology and um, food justice and um, and just all of the the various ways that our faith communities can get involved in um, in helping. Um, seek justice and liberation for the most vulnerable uh, folks around us. Um, if you have any uh, comments or feedback uh, on this episode or suggestions for future episodes, uh, we'd invite you to reach out to us on any of our social media channels. Just do a search for Accidental Tomatoes uh, and you can drop us a note there or you can send us an email at accidentaltomatoes at gmail.com. So until next time, keep on growing outside the fences and join us for another brand new episode of the Accidental Tomatoes podcast.